1: Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wayne and welcome to a very special Roker Report Extra, where today we haven't got our usual roundtable of Roker Report regulars feeling all optimistic about our next game after our victory at Oxford last week, but we are very pleased to have some balance to proceedings and be joined by the chairman of our next opponent, Peterborough United, which is, of course, Darren McAnthony. Welcome, Darren.
0: How are you, pal? How you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Fantastic to have you with us. How are you keeping?
0: I'm good. Now, just before we get into this, am I allowed curse or is this like a non-curse podcast? You can say whatever. Well, listen, fucking great to be here with you guys. <laughs> good stuff.
1: <laughs> well, maybe to carry that theme on, I mean, we, we last caught up with you in August of last year, which seems like an absolute oh. age ago, ahead of our capitulation at London Road when you turned us over 3-0 and we had Luke 09 and Charlie Wake sent off. Um, I imagine oh you enjo- enjoyed that one.
0: God, I remember that now. Yeah, I mean, that does seem like years ago now, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Madison scored two, I think, and um, Josh Knight scored the other one. So, yeah, quite quite different, really. I mean, a year later. So, you're starting 11 compared to then and now? uh, How many changes?
1: Not a huge amount. It's more the system. And yeah. the way we're playing, I think, is yeah. the, is the main difference. Change yeah. of managers, not not necessarily the players, but yeah. I, I thought I'd throw that one in first, so you can enjoy that one before I got into the tough ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does seem like an age ago.
0: It does a long time ago. Yeah, crikey, Almighty,
1: absolute lifetime ago. Um, to be fair, I mean, one one or two things have happened uh, <laughs> since, since we since we last caught up, Dara. Um, so let's try and cover those and bring us up to speed yeah, of before we get to our next game. So I mean, going back to kind of March of this year and Mm. you know when the spread of COVID-19 started to present itself I mean from the point of view of a chairman of a football league club how how did you feel the initial suspension of the league was dealt with by the EFL in terms of trying to avoid uncertainty for for clubs like yourself?
0: You know I I was in Dubai um, on a holiday with my missus and we'd just beaten Portsmouth 2-0 and it all then in the the days preceding everyone had seen what was going on in Italy and Spain and you know everyone had known around Christmas time there was this thing had broken out in China. And it was starting to, you know, possibly make its way across. I think the problem at the time was the lack of information, the lack of, I'm a real data freak. So, um, you know, how how did it really affect people? You're seeing people, do, death rates every day from Italy, death rates every day from Spain. And you're seeing all these, I mean, this is the year of fucking scientists and pandemic epiologists and all these people who are superstars on Twitter now. I can't wait never to see another graph to do with a virus ever again. Do you know what I mean? So... And and you're seeing all these charts, and you're seeing all the scaremongering starts, and then the press get involved, and you know I'm lying in a pool every day watching this, and then it's like oh this this player has it. And every time a player came down with it, it was like a, a headline, do you know what I mean? And and we were playing, I think Bolton. The following game, we had nine games left, six of them were at home. We we're, you were our toughest, I think, opponent in the final nine games, and we were playing Bolton. and We just beaten Portsmouth to go back into the top six. We won seven and nine. So I was sitting in Dubai thinking we were going to probably either win the league or come second. You know, we finally sorted our system out. We'd had the players we want. We, we felt strong in the run-in physically. And then all of a sudden, players are getting infected. So you didn't quite know. So I got all our players, like, tested. Um, one of them and the football secretary were diagnosed with it. As it turns out, six months later, it turns out it was a load of shite. Those tests didn't work because they've one of them got reinfected again recently. Mm. We did antibodies. They never had it. So those tests we false, paid false all the money positive. for, yeah, back in March for the biggest load of bollocks. And, um, mm. and then we had a game at Bolton and I was of the mind of well, we shouldn't play because we just played Portsmouth and they'd had some players infected because of the Arsenal. They played Arsenal, it was a knock-on. So we were like, should we really be going to that game? Mm. So I remember contacting the EFL. And at that point, I think we were all happy to take a pause for a couple of weeks until we knew more. Because you're worried about your supporters, um, particularly we with a lot of older supporters at Peterborough. So you're kind of thinking, Jesus, you know, if players are affecting all the supporters, if it's really as fatal as people are saying, you know, Christ almighty, we need to step down here for a little bit. And then you're thinking at the time, I remember because loads of Rotherham fans and Wickham fans were throwing it at me later on that I tweeted, oh, it's 500 grand to get restarted and without without crowds, it would be senseless to do it. But I genuinely thought at the time, lying in a pool in Dubai, that this would be 20, 28 days. And It would, you know, be under control. We'd know more about it. You know, maybe it was being overblown. Um, and look, a lot of people have lost their lives. A lot of older fans. A lot of older people. A lot of people have lost their lives. And, and we've come a long way since then. I think we've all become data experts, reading about COVID every day. But I think what we, what we've all realised since probably back in March is because we're a lot more educated on the real dangers of this and who it really affects and and people with underlying conditions and people of certain age groups and everything else. And after we were told originally, look, we've got to stop the spread. We've got to, you know, help the hospitals. We've got to lock down to make sure the hospitals weren't overflowing. And we all did our bit. We did it in America and then 15 days turned it into 30 days. Then 30 days turned into 60 days. The UK, you were a lot harsher. I think you were like three months, maybe longer or whatever in lockdown. And everyone's starting to realize and go what are we doing here? Um, because as we know the virus is deadly. We know who it affects. We are now months down the line. We're all wearing masks. We're all doing our bit as we can. But the one thing we can't do is can't give our livelihoods up. We can't lose our economies. We can't let this affect our children uh, and their education. Um, because people, and, and, and people can have a go at me for saying this and whatever else, I have no skin in the game. I could sit at home with my wife in my house for the next three years without leaving my front door and still paying my bills. So, you know, again, I've, and I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. What I'm trying to say is, is I, I I, don't need to argue the point. What I'm arguing the point is, is that what we're doing with these draconian lockdowns and these rules and this constant stop, start, stop, start, stop, start is destroying what was a good economy in the US and in, the, in Europe and the UK. And I'm very worried. I don't think there's any coming back for a lot of people with the depression that's about to come. Because all I'm reading today, again, with the headlines, the newspapers, the scaremongering, is it's lockdown and lockdown too. And we're going to do this. And it's going to be six months of this. And you might get a day off at Christmas. Can't fucking live like that. I'm sorry. And we're at the stage now where we know so much more. We have to look after the most vulnerable. We have to look after care homes better than ever. And we've got to let everyone else get on with their lives, pal. Because, you know, keeping people at home again is a no-go for me. That's just my opinion. And I I apologize if that upsets people. I know people have lost loved ones through it um but i live my life knowing the risks involved i wanted my children back at school i fought hard for them to go back to school because i thought five six months without school was a devastating effect to their mental health um and i have friends who've lost businesses have lost their houses you know through what's going on and i don't think they're coming back from it and mm. you know the mental uh anxiety the depression the suicides, everything that's going to come, I think, in the future will be actually, there'll be more deaths from all of this and poverty included than actual COVID itself. So I don't know where you sit on that, whether you're Team Apocalypse or Team Reality, but, you know, it, you're either in one camp or the other, it seems. Team Apocalypse, I've had a few of them come at me on Twitter where you've got young people who are obviously, you know, who are frightened of leaving their house and they're screaming about, you know, you've got to stay home and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And I always used to say to them on Twitter, you know, do you own your house? Do you have children in school? Do you own a business? Um, Do you you have all the things that in life are important to the mass majority of people who know the risks involved and are willing to take them because they need to get back to that life somehow? I hate the words, the new normal. I fucking love the old normal and I want it back. (laughs) And um, it's it's absolutely devastated football, never mind other industries like the travel industry, the leisure industry. The fact that you're now going to have the furlough come to an end soon, what that's going to mean October, November is... All those companies that were having their wages, their employees paid for them, or a large percentage, guess what they're going to do with the scissors come November? There's going to be a lot of people unemployed and it's not going to be pretty. It's horrible, in fact.
1: In terms of that kind of decision, I mean, in terms of the EFL, um, yeah. because, I mean, obviously it was a tough decision for the EFL to take sure. and they were trying to find an alternative way to end it. I mean, it seemed to me at the time that like the EFL were trying their very best to avoid making a decision for as long as possible. Oh, and they just oh, It was, it was a shit show.
0: It was a shit show. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I spoke to him in March and April, I spoke to Rick Parry on the phone. It was always the plan to go back to play. We didn't furlough our players because we were under the impression we were going to go back and finish the season. I, I felt that, you know, we we're one of the biggest um, leagues in the world, EFL. And the idea that we wouldn't go back and finish, it never came to me. I know, with everything going on, but as the months went by and as April and May approached and things were starting to, there was more coming to light and we knew more about it and we knew Operation Restart was in the was in the works. But I had an inkling in April when you had all these other owners be very vocal about it's not safe to go back and play and we're gonna kill the players and we're gonna and I was one of those people who was on talk sports saying, Yeah, there's probably 10 million athletes around the world in sports. Can you please tell me how many of them have died from COVID? I'd spoken to our doctor at the club, I spoke to two other independent doctors to get an opinion on the dangers to the players themselves. And they told me absolutely pretty much zero. It's the people around them they have to worry about, of course. So I knew the restart was there to be had. I knew it was going to happen in the Premier League. I knew the championship was going to happen. And I felt we could do League One and League Two. I felt the EFL kicked it down the road. So it got so late, it became nearly impossible. There was no help from the PFA uh, or the EFL or anyone else about testing. We got dropped these figures on us that it's going to cost this much to go back and and test everyone. There was no um, budgeting behind it. They never came to us and said, look, we need to budget this up so everyone knows the true cost of finishing those 9, 10 games in the playoffs. None of that was put together. I was obviously quite vocal. A lot of clubs wanted me to be vocal. I was then vilified for being vocal. Um, but I would always stand my corner. My biggest mission was to make sure my employees still had a football club to come back to. Him, mm-hmm. And I felt we needed to get our football club open. And I had a Zoom call with our you know, 150 employees at the club and told them, well, you know when the decision came down, I said, look, you're going to be furloughed, but we're going to do my best, my partners and me, to make sure none of you lose your jobs. And, you know, that's our promise to you. And that's why I fought really hard for our players, our staff. I know they appreciated that. Some clubs didn't. Obviously, the clubs who then got promoted without having to kick a ball, they quite enjoyed that and, and, you know, came at me on social media as they do. But I'm never going to apologize for that. I stand by what I did. I stand by what I said. Every one of us in our league should have finished. And a lot of people hid behind finances. And for me, it was the coward's way out. And the right thing to do was finish.
1: I mean, you said at the beginning there that you spoke to the EFL and and Rick Perry quite early on in March. Yeah. But I mean, from from our point of view as just, you know, fans, just the average fan, it seemed like, I mean, we were certainly probably for, for more reasons than one, but we were kept in the dark. But. Was that communication constant throughout the whole process or were you kept in the dark as well?
0: No, we got like updates every two weeks with a new start date and the dates kept changing because we had players sitting at home. So we needed to know like, well, how can we get them training? When can we go back to the training ground? How are we going to do this? So I spoke to Rick actually in April because obviously I was away in March and I got back to the States and then I spoke to him in April. I think it was about the middle of April. And then I emailed with him as well. But like I said to you, when I started seeing and getting the feeling of all these other owners, who basically their agenda was not to return to play because it suited quite a lot of people. Um, I kind of got the feeling, right, this isn't going the way we want it to. And then I started speaking to other people, including Jim Rodwell at Sunderland, um, Andy Piley at Fleetwood, Marcus Evans, spoke to probably seven, eight uh, clubs. um, And again, you know, on Zoom. And the reaction and the feeling was, look, we all want to play. And, you know, and and also funny enough, I spoke to the Wickham owner. He, He emailed me um but when it came down to it we, we we came out and we did what we did as six clubs there were a couple of clubs who pulled their way from wanting to do that publicly um so that was really frustrating um we all wanted to play and finish we wanted to do it for our fans we also wanted to give our fans something to something to cheer up about because it had been such a rough time and, and you know to get your football back on and watch it it's better than not having it you know and, and i said it at the time like watching axe throwing on tv in america was the highlight you know of my lockdown sports wise <laughs> That was, you know, that was the uh, I became an alcoholic and a sex addict. So, you know, it's uh, my liver's in bits and my missus is walking like John Wayne for the last couple of months. You know what I mean? So, that was uh, probably the only positive from lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoyable lockdown. Man. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Because um, when that decision was confirmed, I mean, let's just recap for, for some who can maybe forgotten, but suddenly sure. on the same points as Peter at the time, but you played a game less. Yeah. And you were taking up that final playoff position when it was decided to move yeah. to the points. Per game. Obviously, I mean, you've said previous you weren't happy about it. You've just kind of mentioned it there. But I mean, from the time it was suspended, did you feel the points per game was an inevitable outcome from quite early on? No,
0: no, No, absolutely not. No way. That only came up in May. Right. So I never thought they'd go down that route. We were three points from second place. Mm. Never in a million what was six home games and nine games. In good form as well. And the best home record in League One. Yeah. Which and and six we were playing six at the bottom eight. So, you know, three points from Rotherham. With all due respect, I never thought points per game would be taken into it at all. Never thought that would be on the table. It's not written in the bylaws anywhere. I thought, um, you know, so that was a shock for me. I got wind of it when we started having EFL owners calls, and you did these Zoom calls, and I was on it at like four in the morning, American time, and I could see all the faces and the people in those calls, and and Jim Rodwell would share the same frustration. He was on those calls from Sunderland. So many the 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 lack of energy in those calls from all these other owners. You know, we're like, yeah, don't want to get back playing. Yeah, we look to next season. Yeah, we can't afford to. Yeah, it's too dangerous. Nah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you just, you knew the way it was going. Uh, and, and some of them been very vocal on social media with their, with their you know, mega horns, you know, prior to that. And I just like, I was like, it's nine games. You know, I, I'd worked out it was probably like three, 350 grand. And my biggest concern as well was, we're going to have a run on refunds. We're going to have supporters. Not only that, we're also going to have sponsors. And everyone's like, no, that's never going to happen. Well, guess fucking what will happen in June? We had all that happen, including our sponsors and our naming-wise people going, hey, we're 23% short here in the season. Are we getting a, you know, we can't continue this unless we get a rebate. So the financial loss compared to what it would have cost to finish, I'd always argued all along, it's probably less than 200 grand. And I thought the PFA with their war chest of 60 million could have stepped forward and gone, there's 6 million for our clients to go and finish the season for testing. Mm -hmm. And that would have taken a huge 130 grand expense out of everyone's budget. And then there would have been very little reason not to play. So for me, there were solutions and it could have been done, but the, the lack of appetite from so many owners, and this is why I changed my, then my Twitter handle from owner of a football club, you know, to owner of Peterborough because we were no longer a football club. We own a football club, our jobs to play football and now no one wants to play football. And I still can never get over the vote. I still haven't, I, 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 you know what? I haven't forgotten. It's not about forgiving. I just, you know, ugh, yeah.
1: Do you think the vote was the best way to go? Or do you think the EFL should have just taken oh, a for the neck and said, this is what's should, happening?
0: The EFL should have straight away come back to us and gone. We're starting on the 5th of June. You've got three weeks to get in training. These are the protocols. This is what you need to do. We've done a deal with a testing company. We've got the PFA to help. This is the approximate cost. Get your players back in training and all furlough. There should have been no vote. Mm. It should have been, this is what's happening. should never have even become debatable. But, of course, you've got people from clubs representing us on the board who are with clubs who maybe didn't want to finish, who are then in the EFL board. So there's a lot of conflict of interest. So there's so much stuff that went on, you could write a book about it. Mm. And, and maybe when I'm finished with football, I will. Because if I did it now, I'd probably never get to buy another football club again if I wasn't a Peter. <laughs> so, and, and you know, people are like, Well, you're not gonna make any friends. I'm not in football to make friends. I, you know, I run a football club in a business. This isn't a popularity contest. I couldn't give a fuck what other honors think about me. At the end of the day, I run a football club, I run it well. Um, our aim is to win every time we play football. Mm. And our aim was to finish the season. And I said it at the time, and I swore my children's life, and I love them dearly to bits. I would always vote to finish football. Even if we, we'd been bottom of the league, four points from the bottom, wherever, I wanted to finish the season. You know, to have that black mark on our history now for the history books in the future, it's, yeah, for me, no, forget it. Forget
1: it. Well, I mean, that, that's covered kind of one of the small things that's happened sure. since we last, last caught up here. <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit uh, to getting this season underway. I mean, yeah. again, how was it for, you know, as, as the chairman of a football club like, like paper United in, in the Football League? Tough. What were the challenges to make sure where you were kind of following the guidance to get going again?
0: So, we needed all the protocols and we were waiting for them for ages. We were waiting for a starting date. Then, we had another Zoom call about starting dates, and you had all the usual suspects and the hymn and horn. And then, you had a few of them go, Well, we shouldn't really start again. We should hibernate. And, you know, we should like, you know, should we really be playing in September? And why don't we wait till October? And you knew what they were trying to do it was like keep their players on furlough, keep their staff on furlough. You know, I run a football club here. You know, I want to get going. I want my players back. I want my staff back. Probably what went against us was we have loads of players on contracts. A lot of these other clubs who wanted to shut down only have 11, 12 on contracts with players. They didn't have any players. So it was quite easy for them basically to just shut up shop for like a long period of time. So, But we're a football club that likes to think, well, this is our business. This is the industry we're in. So for us, we got back early. We took our players off furlough like two weeks before everyone else. We wanted to feel like a football club again. We got all the protocols from the AFL. We got our training ground sorted out. We had our COVID officer designated. We went through all the shites and the, the different hoops you had to jumped through. And then we were back in business. And my manager, who was sitting at home depressed, finally could go on the grass with a ball. And it was a great feeling. So, you know, that's what we wanted to do as a club. We all knew the uncertainty involved, but we also knew we have to get on with this. You know, we can't just sit at home and do nothing. We have to get on with life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to your reaction on your podcast, The Hard Truth, which is yeah. a, a cracked listen, by the way. Thank you for the plug. I listened, I listened <laughs> to your reaction on there to losing Reece Brown and uh, Sariki Dembele. Sure And and that well, that happened before the League One opener against Acton Stanley due to the correct uh, testing positive for COVID. It obviously it sounded on that podcast you were pretty uh, angry, if not fr- kind of frustrated, with the players. I was. I mean, was it the position that they put themselves in, and from a club's point of view? Is there anything you can do other than just trust the players?
0: I love those two lads. And I was very frustrated because we'd we gone through, I think, seven, eight weeks of pre-season. We had to do, like, umpteen tests. Tests before they came back. Tests when they were back. We went to St. George's Park for, for camp. I did tests. Everyone there did. I've done, like, five COVID tests since I've been in the UK. So we paid for the testing. We went through everything. We've played all our games. We've tested. Everything's fine. You get to the season, you don't have to test anymore. You do one big round of testing before you do. And we've made it very clear to the players, guys, we've waited so long for this. This is so important. And to have two players go fucking down before game one of the season, and not only two players, two of you starting 11. And then they affect two other people who are living with them. So yeah, I was kind of like angry. They probably know I'm angry. So they owe us big time. And all I'm trying to say, I said, I was angry with a manager as well. And probably just taking it out on him. Because I just said to him, this is housekeeping here. How the fuck do players go down with it the week before? What are they doing? Where are they traveling to? Are they traveling out of Peterborough? Because the whole idea is this is your career. You've waited months to get off your couch, get back out and do what you love doing, get paid really well to do. Why would you endanger that by possibly traveling? And what I'm saying to the players is for the next few months, just live in a fucking bubble. You're all meant to live near the club anyway. Just go to train, go home, get takeaway, bang your missus, have a few drinks, do what you do, go to training. If you can do that and limit your interaction with the outside world, just for a few months, everything will be fine in the world. And that's all we were asking. And I know it sounds hypocritical, we've got to live our life and whatever else, but the the eyes of the world are on us. If we want to give our fans football with fans, we have to take that responsibility as football clubs and football footballers to make sure that we're not having a mass spread of COVID amongst players. None of the players are going to be affected by it, health-wise, thankfully, because of the statistics. But... It's the, it's the publicity. It's like today, Leighton Orient, they've got players with COVID. And now you're talking about the headlines, oh, the Tottenham game might not go ahead. No one was writing articles about us a week ago about our players. Mm. Why all of a sudden are the press picking up on the Leighton Orient story today and making a mm. fucking meal out of it today? Why do you think that is? It could it be to do with all the lockdown too and all the drama and 50,000 infections in October. But seven days ago, Peter United in their first league game of the season had the same problem. So, do you get my frustration? So, if, if if Boris is going to lock everyone down, and this isn't a dig at sports journalists because I love them, lock all the essential workers like journalists down as well with us. Let's see how the narrative changes then when we all come out of lockdown. Well, let's let's leave COVID behind for a little sure. bit because I think <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered that. You're definitely Team Apocalypse over there, aren't you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at, at, at my count, this is your fifteenth season at Peterborough. Have oh, I got geez. that right? It's a 15, probably, 15 probably. Season? I think probably. it was 2006. I mean, from an outsider looking in, in general terms, I, can, you've progressed from being essentially a League Two side into an established top-half League One sure. club during your time. I mean, do you think that would be a fair summary of the progress you've made?
0: Yeah, definitely, yeah. We should have done a lot better. You know, there are small moments in life, we call them sliding doors. You know, like we had a young team that got relegated from the Championship of 54 points. That will never happen again. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. If we, if we hadn't, if that hadn't happened with the last kick of the season, we'd probably be a top 12 championship side now. You know, the, there's, so it might look like we've only come from the bottom of League 2 up to, to top half of League 1, but in that story is a lot of other things. Do you know what I mean? There's promotions, there's cup triumphs, there's wins at Wembley, there's wins at Old Trafford. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's 55 million pounds in player sales of young players, you know? What I've done at Peterborough recruitment, and again, people think you big-headed fucker saying all of this, but there's no better deal maker outside of the Premier League than me when it comes to recruitment and transfers in football. And I've proved that over 12, 14 years. You'd probably say 12 because it took a few years to get our policy up and running. And, you know, we now have an academy that's going to move up to Category 2 um, in 12 months' time. We have a training ground that's second to none. We we're just doing a deal to buy our stadium, and then we're building a new stadium. So there's a lot of stuff, progression, in, in the pipeline. And obviously we have to back that up now in the pitch and get our arses out of League One and into the Championship. And the biggest kicker about COVID last year was we felt nailed on that we were going to go up. (laughs) Mm.
1: Just because you mentioned it there in terms of the the academy and you're looking to move to a cat two. what do you think of Sunderland's kind of insistence on on sticking with being a a Category 1 academy while they've been in League One?
0: I think it's the right way to go for any club. Sunderland, I've said it before, is a Rolls-Royce in a garage full of three-series BMWs. Do you know what I mean? If 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 that metaphor makes sense. Mm. If you look at if you look at the Sunderland training ground, if you look at the Sunderland ground, you know it's a Premier League club. And their academy has provided some financial, you know, um stability the last couple of years, or not stability, but it's given them a few quid when they've needed it. You you know, obviously you had the young striker, you probably could have got a lot more money for if his contract had been longer. But yeah, yeah. I have no issue with a club like yours having that category one tag in League One. Um, you're not going to be in League One forever. So why would you go down a category and then have to go back up again and go through the whole? Because you have to go through these stages. Like We've gone through the stage, and now we have 12 months approval to go Cat 1, and we have to pass the approval. It's been approved, but we've got to jump through the final hoops to get there. Mm. So once you're there, you don't want to go backwards, right? Mm. And fans will tell you, and you probably know this, there's nothing better than money of your own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I would imagine the passion of the Sunderland faithful would feel the same. So our, our, our MO is to have minimum two, three every year out of our academy in our first-team squad. This year, we have a batch of four of the best teenagers we've had in my 15 years that are worth a fortune and will play at the very top. And we're very patient with them. And it's a real kudos to our academy. And that will only get better as we go through the levels of category where we can keep our best youngsters. So Sunderland, I would imagine, depending on who current on or the future on or whatever happens with the club what's their philosophy you know but if you're a fan you want the philosophy to be a bit of a blend and we're a bit of a blend category based youth based and then obviously gem based with how we recruit with a sprinkle of a couple of older players but not too old
1: <laughs> yeah you're right there that there's nothing better than one of your own but mm. uh, you don't know whether to laugh or cry when you see them winning the Champions League with a, with a different side <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm
0: a Liverpool fan and and Jordan, look what the captain he's turned into. Brilliant. But, y- y- yeah. y- you know, Klopp has probably made him more into the... Look, he was great under Brendan. And I always say when he was red carded, we lost the league that day when we beat Man City years ago. Such was his... Sometimes you look at a player and go, what do they do? But you don't realise the importance, the sum of all parts to, to a team. Absolutely. Sometimes fans don't see it. I'm a fan. And you got oh, a player, he's a sideways passer. He's this, he's fucking that. The importance of Jordan Henderson, my heart sunk yesterday at half time when he didn't come out because I know statistically, data wise, how important he is to that starting 11, yeah. as would Jurgen Klopp. Um. so love love Jordan and, and great business for Sunderland 20 million for a player who, who basically had the cradle marks on his arse
1: I'd I prefer him to stay and win the Champions League though but uh, <laughs> never mind um, but, but on the subject of progressing moving on as I said it's been around 15 years that you've been at People United and for around half that time you've had the current manager Darren Ferguson but yeah. over three separate spells I mean you don't see that very often he won promotion to the championship, you know, in yep. his previous two spells. Yep. So was that the, the bottom line in bringing him back in 2019?
0: Yeah, we, we, I have got new partners, Jason and Randy from Canada. They're good partners. And they bought half the club off me a couple of years ago. And when we decided to get rid of Steve Evans, um, uh, they were very much in on board with the whole youth and the younger type philosophy. We'd gone away from for about a year, 18 months. And we were looking around and we needed a temporary manager till the summer. Mm-hmm. And Darren had been unemployed. He left where He felt he needed to move on from there. He hadn't worked for like six months. So I'd let Steve go. And I said to them, let me go meet Darren. We'll bring him in until the end of the season. And then if you guys want to be involved in the recruiting process of a new manager, you know, we'll do it in the summertime. So I met Darren. said, look, come on, come, come take the keys of the car. You know what I mean? It's safe hands and have a go. We go, we go, we don't, we don't. Uh, he wasn't really committed about wanting the job either do you know what i mean was he being twice and you're always worried look i'd him twice there's always that too um you know but we'd always had a great relationship so i knew what i was getting and you know fortunately my partners loved him to bits and really enjoyed having him and then after about three months they're like why don't we get this guy back full time so i was like okay fine so i spoke to darren and he was like well you know what well, what's the plan what's the..." so we, we we put out the plan and he was on board and i guess we get him he gets us we work in unison Really good relationship. Yes, I fired a few managers. Um, but in, in all fairness, I should never have fired him the second time. That one was on me. Um, you know, he would have been with us still. Um, so, yeah, very, very happy. And it's really important for a football club, the stability to have a good manager that you trust.
1: Yeah. I mean, if we can, I mean, take COVID-19 mm. out completely out of the equation for this question. I mean, obviously, I mentioned, you know, 15 years. But how different is the role now to what it was when you first started, kind of? you know, all that time ago?
0: Um, pretty similar to be fair. I mean, I've, I've always had a similar philosophy and policy at the club. I've always had the same interaction with my manager. I've had the same director of football for 15 years, you know, Baz, he'll live forever. And if he doesn't, I'll have him cryogenically frozen, you know what I mean? We're <laughs> going to bring him back. Um, <laughs> so, you know, our structure has always been pretty, pretty, more, pretty sound, you know, although the results might have always got us what we wanted or where we needed to go. We're a pretty well run club. We've always been healthy. You know, we've always done business when we've needed to do business. Um, there's never been a crisis in that side of things. Look, do fans get pissed off with, you know, not winning promotion? Of course, I raised the bar. The expectation's there. They'll come at me on Twitter. You know, there was a period where they were at me nonstop, some of them. But it's not the mass majority. The mass majority understand what we're doing. And I always say that as long as you're transparent with your fan base, you know, about what you want to do at the club and what your thoughts, your goals, your, your ideas, your ideology is, they're okay with that. Just be straight with them. And if you turn around and say, look, guys, it's been a fucking horrible year financially, so we're going to have to cut back next year. We're going to try and have a go, but tamper your expectation. You know, at least they're warned, right? Yeah. I mean, do you still enjoy it? I love owning a football club. Mm -hmm. Um, If I was gone tomorrow, I'd buy another club. Um, (laughs) Football's a drug. Um, I've been in it a long time. I enjoy it. I feel it's something I'm good at. Um, I'm not in it to make money. I'm just... I'm in it for the passion it's 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 that love i still feel horrible when we lose i still feel like on saturday with two injury time goals you know like <laughs> on top of the world um you know yourself and, and it is and, and even though i'm a liverpool fan you know i i am blue you know you cut me open it's peterborough so that's just the way it is and and I'm travelling I was, I was trying to fly up to Sunderland on Saturday that's a fucking nightmare so now I'm going to have to do like a 380 mile drive or whatever else to go up there to yeah. the game so and I believe you've restrictions that's not going to be easy either so yeah. Yeah, yeah that that shows the passion you know what I mean get to the game well I mean
1: you mentioned kind of the finances of, of Peter when you were you were talking about uh, your time with the club I mean there's a lot of discussion sure. about finances of EFL clubs at the minute sure and the current situation I mean do you think the salary cap was inevitable and what oh, do you yeah. think of what they, uh, they actually finally introduced?
0: I love a salary cap. I love a formula. Um, <laughs> I'm very much like, I love the NFL. I think it works really successful in American sports. Yeah. The reason I voted for it was, was because so many people voted to end the season. And when you end the season because you can't find 300 grand to play in nine games, that tells me there's a salary cap needed. Um, yeah. The other thing about a salary cap is it comes down to recruitment. And I always fancy my chances in a recruitment battle um, against any club. And I understand the bigger clubs who have bigger wage bills and bigger players to to manage it all. And Mm. and look, our wage bill is not cheap. We had to manage and juggle this this summer, leave people out, bring people in, clear the decks. Um, Could it have been set higher than two and a half? Yes. If you'd listened to my Hard Truth podcast a few episodes ago, probably seven episodes ago, I spoke about ideas I put to the EFL on that. It was a little bit similar to the previous one, but better on a turnover-based scheme. So a club like Sunderland turning over $10 a year, could spend a little bit more. A club like Peterborough turning over five, six, spend a bit less, all within reason, and all monitored and made sure it was correct. Um, I felt like if a club like us sold Ivan Tony for multi-millions of pounds, some of that should have been included for us to be able to do better than other clubs, because that's rewarding us for having a really good recruitment policy. So you should be rewarded yeah. and be able to do a bit better. Um, so yeah. it wasn't a perfect science the way they did it, I do think it will change in the next couple of years. I think it will yeah. be adjusted because it needs to be adjusted. You can't have Sunderland with 34,000, 40,000 fans with a two and a half million pound wage bill. That's not logical. So that needs to be tampered. It needs to be adjusted. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I know Ipswich yourselves, you weren't happy with a Portsmouth, weren't happy. You know, I'm friends with the CEO of Portsmouth he made it known to me that he wasn't happy. But I said, look, mm. that's just the way it is.
1: I agree. I mean, that, my, my thinking was that, You know, there's a difference between the financial stability of the EFL clubs and levelling the playing field. And it seems like the way they've done the salary cap is more levelling the playing field than it is looking after the the, 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 the financial.
0: Right. There's an element to that, most likely. I'm I'm not sure there was a big agenda about levelling the playing field. I I didn't (laughs) vote to... I feel we're level anyway. And I know that sounds mad, Peterborough, Sunderland, because you're a massive club. But if you look at last season, you know, I I feel you're always going to be one of the favourites for the league. But I would feel that if we weren't up there competing with you, I've done something wrong. So there was never a level playing field, you know. Now, if you have some shake that comes in and suddenly you're spending 100 million, you know, on players of that Ilkin League One, of course, you're miles and miles ahead of us. That's football. Um, I didn't vote to level the playing field. I voted because, like I said to you, people couldn't afford 300 grand to finish the season. And I felt, well, okay. well, now a message needs to be sent to everyone again to show
1: where the vote was wrong. Keeping on the the subject of finances, I mean, you've you've been busy in the transfer market, sure. Um, and you're actually one of the a few teams to part with any cash, really, this this summer. Was that all down to the sale of Ivan Tony? Because yes. I mean, I, I thought you did well to keep him for another year, and yeah. I read with this deal possibly going up to to ten million. Yep. I mean, was it just something you just couldn't refuse in the
0: end? No, no, no. We we'd always said to the player he he could go this summer. Um, that was always an agreement. I stick to my agreements with my players. We might get you know. Oh, you sell your best players. Well, listen. There was a pandemic going on. The deal I struck for Ivan Toney was magnificent. Nobody would rival that deal uh, in a pandemic. And um, we always knew that we were going to lose him. So to get the players back we had last year, to do a bit of business, to get his replacement, we would need to sell him. And we would need to do the business right. So I structured all the deals we were doing over time. And when we got the Ivan deal, that's over time. So it was on one hand, cover what we spent. And we spent over a couple of million on players. And on the other hand, to help us pay for our budget this year and some of the losses from the from the pandemic ending because we took a serious financial hit with everyone voting no. So that deal, you know, and, and, and we had massive money offered to us for another one of our players. And I don't want to go into that, who he is. But when mm-hmm. we told that player he's not leaving and we had two clubs, one Prem, one Champ, who want to buy him. And they'll probably still try up until the end of the window. But we've made a decision, no, you can go next summer. And if we don't get promoted, we know next year's budget's taken care of by selling him. You know, and, and, and that's it, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, you've done probably the, the top two deals in, in League One in terms of Clark Harris and, and Smoddix. Yeah. But, I mean, are you done, do you think, in the summer or do you think there's more to do?
0: 100%. We I, I got a bit greedy. There was another player I thought we'd go, oh, you know, that's like a something a bit special maybe so we had a pop at someone else we agreed a fee with the agent the player it all went pear-shaped so i pulled out mm. and um and i don't usually pull out <laughs> so um <laughs> so so i just decided at that point you know what we're okay we're good we're done and uh, yeah. you know we we feel squad wise strength wise pretty much 10 of these starting 11 last year is still there um plus some additions and now we have younger players who are a year older so <laughs> we feel we're in a good spot. Um, it's early days and, you know, you, you lose your first game, bag of shit at Akron and Stanley, not great against Fleawood. We're now going to the, to the Monsters, the, the big club in League One, Sunderland. And I say Monsters respectfully, by the way, when besides mm, club-wise. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, we're driving into the Rolls-Royce Stadium on, on Saturday. And again, a club that's probably the favourites for the league. And who knows? You know, we could get tanked. You know, it could be an entertaining game. But I do know this, regardless of what happens on Saturday, it's not going to determine who gets promoted.
1: We'll, we'll come back to that. Sure. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the, the, there's been a lot of discussion at Sunderland in terms of the scouting system and the use of data analysis. I sure. mean, you've already said you love your data, but without giving mm. any secrets away at Peterborough, is that something you do to analyse targets?
0: Yeah, I, I run that side of things myself. And um, I do it with two people who work for me, not the club. So they, they're they my private people, and I've assessed them. I've used it for a long time, and that's what I do. And with my partners, basically, my role is I have final decision on all football related stuff, um, ins outs everything. So, and then Barry works for me within that um, on certain deals. Sometimes I'll do stuff on my own, like I did the Ivan deal, um, and and a lot of the time Baz will do a lot of the stuff as well. So, you know, there's, there's there's no perfect science to recruitment, but there's definitely a, a formula to how you do it. Yeah. And we don't always get it right. Yes, we get some good headlines when we sell players and we do whatever else, but it's tough. It's tough, as you saw in the documentary. You know, it's tough. You know what I mean? Particularly on deadline day. You know, it's tough.
1: I mean, on the subject, I mean, a couple of chances I wanted to to mention to you, a couple of players. Um, The first is um, Jack Bolden. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, your captain when we signed him in in 2018. And at times, I mean, for us, he looked like you know, he had all the tools at this level, but he didn't last too long at Sunday. Are you surprised how it's gone for him? No. Since he left Peyton? Um
0: I paid 500 grand for Jack as a 19 year old. He was magnificent for us. Eddie Howe offered us 2 million after we lost in the playoffs in League One. He wanted to buy him for Bournemouth in the Premier League. Top class young centre back. We said no. We thought we'd get four. Um, and come the end of that window that summer, he ripped his leg. He did his ACL. He did his MCL. He damaged his leg very badly. He was out for 14 months, lost a yard of pace for a centre half. That's tough. And that young player, I'm gutted for him because he's the nicest man you'll ever meet, and he should have played in the Premier League. Mm. And that set him back massively. Some players come back from that, some players don't. And when he came back, he always had that mistake in him. And it didn't seem to go away. And I hope now he he builds on the I think he's going to the Bristol Rovers. And hopefully, you know, that will work out and he'll he'll do really well. I knew when he started with you, they were calling him Jack and Bauer, I think it was or whatever at the start. And and I I was like, I was smiling. I was hoping it was going to go really well for him. Mm -hmm. But I was just gutted that he was a player that could have gone. We had two that season, him and Jermaine Anderson. Both we had multi-million pound bits for and both did their ACLs. Mm A horrible,
1: yeah. yeah no, he's, he started off fantastic, and then, yeah, you know, as he said, a couple of mistakes, and it was it was at the business end of the season, I think. And yeah, kind of just went a bit wrong after that. But, um, but the, the other player I wanted to mention was probably you probably guessed, but it was Marcus Madison, yes, still a free agent, as far as I know. I mean, do you think he's one of the many players this summer who's fallen into the trap of trying to sign for a championship club, thinking, Oh, well, I'll be able to get a League One club, and then the salary caps come in and they found it difficult to actually find a club generally.
0: I know he's had a dig at me recently on social media about how the club... Tri- I, I did nothing but look after that kid for years at my club. The stuff I had to put up with, and I obviously did a video on that at the end of the January window, and for him to come out and say things like that was just like, yeah, I couldn't believe it. He's, there's only one person to blame for him not being on 10 grand a week right now in the championship, and that's him. I did two deals in January, one with Charlton. Didn't realise they had a transfer embargo, as it turned out. And we'd done another deal with Birmingham. And he turned down both of those clubs. Did He spoke to Charles. He didn't even want to go go to Birmingham. And I told his agent at the time, I told him, bad advice, take the deal. He thought he'd go in the summer as a free and he'd be able to you know, have the pick. And we did a deal last minute with Hull where he could go and play at the end of the season. Didn't work out. I think he then didn't want to come back and play when they needed to end their season. That didn't go down well. And yeah, and someone will give him a chance because he's a mercurial talent and and he's a great player, but mm-hmm. until he gets that right, you know his head right and 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 the full commitment to the game, um he could be in the lower leagues for a while mm-hmm. um but could he play higher all day long in a heartbeat with mm-hmm. that talent but you've got to I say it to my players all the time, you have to commit to your craft, you have to give it everything, just like if you're a welder, if you drive a bus. If you serve drinks, you do it to the best of your ability with the best work ethic possible. And I've done all those jobs when I was younger. And the one thing you could never say is I wasn't a hard worker. You know, put me in a room with anyone, I'll outcraft outcraft anyone.
1: I think he's last link to the MLS, but um, we'll see. We'll really, see, I'm sure. I think so. Yeah, since Cincinnati, I think we're linked with them, but that was last month, so <laughs> it's been a while. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, go, going back at, uh, to our last meeting at, at London Road, it was only a couple of months later that we sacked. Jack Ross as we kind of yes. were in a when we were in a playoff position. Yes. I know a lot's happened since then, but can you remember being surprised that we decided to make that change in October?
0: No, because I think what had happened was you were worried about um history repeating itself from the year before. I think you know Jack Ross is very much that 1-0 manager whereas we've always been that 5-4 team, we like to score more goals and attack whereas Ross probably at the time was get a 1-0 lead and then try and hold on to it and it backfires and it blows up in your face. Yeah. And the Sunderland fans and that fan base in League One is not going to accept sitting on 1-0 Yeah. You know, you own Sunderland Football Club, you're going to have to get a manager who's got balls like melons, who knows <laughs> he's going to have to go out and he's going to have to have like Rolls-Royce football to to match the club and go and put the knife to teams. So in other words, you're 1-0 up, you bring another striker on, not a defender. And I think that if you looked at his stats in the first season, he drew too many games because he was a little bit too cautious. So I think probably the owners looked at it and went, well, it's going that way again. And if we end up in the playoffs here, we're going to, history's going to repeat itself. So, And I'd imagine the fans get quite restless, get quite negative, get quite vocal, and then the pressure starts to build. So they probably thought at times. I've I've sat managers in the playoff spots before, so that's no new one. If you feel it's not going the way you think it should go, you, you have to be decisive and you have to take action. So that's probably why the owners did that. Um, but I think Jack Ross is a good manager, but I just think for what Sunderland needed in League One, Sunderland should have hired Darren Ferguson. Darren Ferguson's been promoted multiple times from League One, you know, and it amazes me he's never had a chance at other clubs. You see some of the managers of these big clubs going higher. He was unemployed, I think, when you guys were, were looking for a League One manager. And he should have been the first port of call because he would provide young, attacking football that would excite the crowd. You would have 5-4 scorelines. You would have goals galore. And he's a promotion winner. And I was amazed, do you know what I mean? And I remember saying to the gaffer at the time, if Sunderland called you, He wasn't my manager, we were just talking. And he was like, no. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. You should be on the list to interview. And, um, you know, that's the kind of manager maybe at the time. But look, what they've got now is they've got a manager who is a League One uh, promotion winner, very experienced, knows what he's doing, knows what he wants from his players, won't take any bullshit. Um, And you've probably seen that discipline in in your start to the season. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I think you're in very good hands.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just after that as well. I mean, it was our Boxing Day game where it really kind of turned on, on Stuart Donald. I mean, were you surprised how how it went after that for Stuart Donald? Or do you think anyone would have been under pressure for the to get straight back into the championship in the first or, or even second attempt?
0: No, because I, I'd put myself in the shoes of any person buying Sunderland. If I sat in front of all the fans and I, I am very, very transparent, I'd be like, look, we're the biggest club in the league in name, and now we have to show it on the pitch. And we've got to do it swashbuckling style. You know, and we've, we've got to, you know, put a market down here and make people frightened to come into playoffs. And you do that by hammering teams. Mm. But you also do that providing the manager with the players to do it. So I would say to the Sunderland faithful, we're going to bring through the best of the youth. We're going to bring in younger, exciting players. It might take a few months. You might need to press the pause and patience button. Don't expect to roll over teams every week. But when we get going, fuck me, we're going to be like a Learjet. Mm. So I, I'd have been the same. Now, it didn't work. The fans would be at me, and because I'm so open in social media, and I believe he was on social media as well, I, was, no, yeah. no, no, doubt the fans, yeah, and no doubt the fans would have come at me big time, you know. But again, you handle that, and yeah. I front fans all the time, and I've done that, you know, yeah. on social media. Look, everyone's entitled to an opinion. I always just say to people, keep it fucking respectful and keep it clean, otherwise, you're yeah. going to get it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: and of course, I mean, now we're up for sale, and we've had one or two sure. characters. Uh, publicly declaring their interest, which I think you've had <laughs> first-hand uh, <laughs> experience of seeing on social yeah, media. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, is it, is it just about the worst time to be trying to sell a football club? Or are there people out there who still see this as an opportunity?
0: No, there are, if I didn't own Peterborough, I'd set up a brokerage to sell football clubs because, you know, I could put deals together. And it, I just don't think there's enough good ones out there who know what they're doing. There's definitely an appetite from people, particularly in the States and in Asia, uh, and the uae who want to buy football clubs how on earth sunderland's not been sold i have no idea because it's an absolute sleeping giant and it's an absolute you know from a financial point of view you look at you look at what mandridge did with portsmouth with leicester with sheffield wednesday i think he made collectively like 150 million through those three clubs going in doing it the right way getting them in the right position and selling them when they're at the right point and sunderland is an absolute a dream buy for anybody no, I have no idea what the current owners want because obviously I own a club, so why would I have any idea? I don't know um, what the figures are. So they could mm. be on the... Do you know? Does anyone know? He's he's publicly come out, and I can't remember the
1: exact figure, but it was something like around the 35 million mark that he in the club.
0: Absolute bargain. Absolutely. I, I can't believe there's not a queue out the door. Absolute bargain. If that's true, absolute bargain. So I'm I'm astonished nobody's jumped in and, and, and paid that.
1: Well, as I said, there's one or two who... Uh they put their hand up, but I don't know how uh,
0: yeah look, they you, are. You, you know what? There's, you know, there's, What did I say? You know, money talks and bullshit walks. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. So anyone who comes out publicly and says yeah. I'm buying a club, if I, if I was out down the market now buying a club, you wouldn't hear from me, even though no, I exactly. love the sound of my own voice. And there isn't a microphone or a camera I've met that I don't like. You wouldn't hear from me unless the money was sat in escrow. You know, mm-hmm. telling people, look, there's a deal. If it's come out publicly, this is what we're going to do. Because I'm one of those superstitious people I would hate you know, for the shit to end up in my face where I'm, oh, I'm buying this club and then it doesn't happen. So th- that I, I can't stand when people are like, oh, we're buying this club and we're doing this. And I don't know who that clown was who came at me on Twitter. But you know, at the end of the day, that football club deserves a good ownership structure. I haven't got a problem with stewards. I thought him and his guys would be good owners. Um, I understood what they were trying to do. I thought it would work. It, it might still work. You know, at the end of the day. So, you know, his heart's probably in the right place. He loves his football. I know he owned the club before. Um, I know he obviously travels a long way. And, uh, you know, why has it gone wrong?
1: Million dollar question for, for some yeah. of the fans at the minute. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Peterborough season so far, you mentioned some of the games, three points out of a possible six. What's your assessment so far?
0: We haven't even left first gear. We're, you know, missing key players because of the COVID. We signed, obviously, our million pound striker who, who wasn't fit when he came. You know, so we're now getting him in shape. Sammy was at Bristol, Sammy Schmoddocks. He hardly played, so he's not super fit. Then went down with COVID and he's going to be the best player in League One Dembele this year. When he came on for the second half against Fleetwood, their defense basically parked on their goal line for the last 30 minutes. So that that was funny to watch because he just frightens the life out of teams and um, when he's running at people. Um I uh yeah, I mean it's one of them things where you're thinking you lose to Akron and you lose to Fleetwood. And then you got to Sunderland. That's not a dream start for like one of the bookies' favourites. But like I said to you, I don't get that upset early on anymore. We had a crap start last year. We lost, I think, four of our first five games. So the old saying is, it's now you start, until tell you finish. But COVID's put paid to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as well as, I mean, it has the, has the money you've spent in the two, the two major signings. Do you think that's raised the bar in terms of expectation as well?
0: Uh, of course, because people saw what we were like with those players at the end of last season. We brought back Reese Brown. We've brought Schmuck back in. We've replaced Ivan. Ivan's nearly irreplaceable. But if you're going to go get a target man, Clara Harris is the best in League One, in my opinion, um, for goals and statistics and data. And he's a good age. But it's going to take time for them all to gel. And um, you're probably hoping they won't gel for another few weeks. But the point is, it will take time. Just like with Sunderland, like with Danny Graham, you know, it, it it takes time to adjust to a move. Um, you know, and. and Everyone always gets really anxious and envious when people start. And, oh, they won their first five games and are top of the league and whatever else. But very rarely is that where teams end up. I remember a few years ago we won our first seven games. Portsmouth won their first eight. You know, we finished the season ninth, and I think Portsmouth finished seventh. So it's not always about that start, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned being favourites. I, I did have a quick look at the odds. Actually, um, I looked at the odds for League One top six finishes, and the two top favourites. A Sunderland and Peterborough so uh, as you mentioned I mean it's only the last game uh, th- sorry it's only the third game uh, and it's it's still early days it's not going to decide anything no but is it still a big game is it still a huge game on
0: Saturday it's a massive game we play Sunderland every club that plays Sunderland is a massive game because regardless how you fans feel about how it's gone you're, you're a monster in this league you, you, you're a giant club you know when we go to a Sunderland and an Ipswich and teams like that I mean these are Premier League teams these are Premier League stadiums these are this is what our players aspire to play at and be at and, and, and that level. And, you know, our, our games are always good fun. We drew 2-2 at your place a couple of years ago. We then had the 1-1 where it was injury time goals, you know, which pretty much, I think, put paid to your automatic hopes. Then we had last year where you came to us and, and we beat you 3-0. So they're always,
1: they're always I'm, good I'm games. I'm struggling to say where the fun is. And all of sorry, <laughs> sorry. No,
0: but they're entertaining games. And, and, yeah. and, you know, you'd like to think we're both up there. And look, if you give me one and two right now, I'll take it all day long. Um, you, you know, but Sunderland, and I've said this to the fans over and over, you're not going to be in League One forever, trust me. Um, you, you, you know, it right. already feels
1: like forever. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it does,
0: you know, but I, I fancied you at the end of last season to also have a run like us. So, you know, when the season was ended. So you can really ignore last season and your first season you made Wembley. It's just quit bitching, get supporting, and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm telling you, you know, you, you're going to be back in the champ soon. Well,
1: on that on that subject of supporting this weekend, obviously behind closed doors, how um, much does that come into it, like the mentality of the players? And are we starting to lose a bit of the home away dynamic kind of without the it's, fans.
0: It's like a pre-season game with no fans. It's like um, Saturday against Fleetwood. You know, you score two goals in injury time to win a game. Your players are basically in with the crowd. They're crowd surfing, you know. The, the, there's some, gobsh- the stuff. some gobshites usually get on the pitch. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's always a bit of that, you know. And 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 you hear that roar and the excitement and the adrenaline and you know and and, and look, uh, I'd love to be going to the stadium alight with thirty five thousand people there because I've been to Newcastle when we played in the Championship and that atmosphere was like something I'd never experienced before, and I would imagine it's the same at Sunderland. So, mm. so not, this is my first time going there. So to not go and, and have the crowd experience, never mind is one of the players, just as, you know, a, an owner, director, mm. I'm gutted because I'm mm. going to be in this beautiful big stadium and you're going to be able to hear, you know, everyone on the sideline and whatever, and no fans. So, you know, again, fans need to be back at football and they need to be yeah. back yesterday.
1: We're desperate for it. Um, and I remember from last time, you don't make predictions. So instead, I would ask you, I mean, where do you think the game's going to be? Won and lost at the weekend. Where the kind of big players in in each side.
0: If if we if we don't if if we don't start playing out of ourselves and 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 start taking the foot off the the throttle, Sunderland will beat us. If we play to our maximum, we can win the game. Um, you know where is it going to be won? You're strong defensively now, aren't you? You know you, you've beaten very, a good Oxford side. Yeah. You're very strong defensively. We felt up until these few games. You know because we had obviously we won the Golden Gloves last year, and we have the same. Back four, back five, and goalkeeper. So we feel we're strong defensively. So I guess it'll be it'll be all decided in 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 you'd like to think up front, but I think midfield's gonna be a battle. I believe you're missing Dobson this weekend, are you?
1: Yeah, he got sent off on the opening day. but Grant Ledbetter came in at Oxford and did a did a fantastic job in front of the back three. So <laughs> top top player. Top
0: top player. Um, you know, again, just goes to show you, he's probably on like eighteen grand a week. Top top player, you know. So I, I guess midfield's gonna be a bit of fun. And you know, is has Danny Graham started playing for you yet? Is he is he fit? He
1: didn't start the opening day, but then he started um against Oxford. Is he doing his thing? I think he lasted till about 70, 75 minutes. So How's um, as he, as he looking? Uh, he's he's looking he's looking lean. He's probably looking leaner than when he played for us kind of four or five years ago, so
0: he it, will test our back line and, and John will test your back line. And and then it'll be the little magic men in between. And um, if Dembele is over his COVID, because that's why he didn't start against Fleetwood, he, because of the COVID, and he'd been out for like a week or ten days. So the size of that pitch um, at your place, we like a big pitch. I'm sure you know you like playing on a big pitch. Mm. You know, should we uh, should we go for five five or, or four four? What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm
1: listening at the end. I'm I'm going to put a wedge on nil nil. I think. After... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you right now, if I travel. All those hours to get there, right? It's nil nil. Uh, but listen, whoever wins, like I said, I'd like to think we'd both be up there. Uh, it's early days. It's probably unfair to fixtures to throw us up so early. Um, you know, like we've had Akron in the way, we've had Fleetwood at home. Fleetwood, basically, when we played Fleetwood, they hadn't lost in 17 league games and they'd won their first five. So, you, you, you know, it's one of them where you're looking at it and going, Jesus Christ, I mean, you know, you're throwing us these fixtures early on. You know, Akron is never a great place to go away to in the first place, you know, and, and uh, and now we're at Sunderland, third game in. But look, we all got to play each other twice, hopefully. And it's going to be a long old season. And wouldn't it be great there to be promoted and have this have this chat in the chat next year?
1: It would be incredible. And on that note, I'd just like to say it's been an absolute pleasure, Derek. Thank you yeah. very
0: much for your time. All, always. Your fans are always great on social media and I always have a lot of banter and fun with them. Uh salt <laughs> to the earth. So uh, you know, wishing you all well. And uh, you know. Let's see what happens for the season. Let's try and enjoy the ride.
1: Yeah, I wish you all the best uh, for the rest of the season. After Saturday, of course.
0: Wanker! (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: and, and thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as well. But from us, it's bye for now.
0: Cheerio.